They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hello. With an all new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison third. I'm Louis Vernal, due to the spring. And I'm, dang, I'm Aida a Springman. I was going to go for that, Louis. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to really do it. Welcome. Every day, I try and, you know, just do a normal intro in YouTube. Mm-hmm. Uh huh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, oh, yeah. No, my classic vaudeville training always jumps right up. It's not his fault. Chaos is our only constant. I want everyone to know that Lewis is in his childhood bedroom. I am. And I'm, I'm like looking for clues as to like how he was created. Yeah. <laughs> how did this happen? How can we prevent Lewis, it? Lewis, tell, um, tell, tell the people what you see before you on the desk or in the desk. Oh, okay. So uh, I'm at home in Chicago visiting my fam. And I have a brother who inhabits this bedroom now, but there's still remnants of who I used to be in here. And <laughs> like, for example, one summer I was an intern at The Advocate in uh, Los Angeles, the, the National Gay Lesbian Magazine. <laughs> and I interviewed Lady Gaga from this bedroom on the phone. I was like a chattering ninny. I was so excited. <laughs> and uh, I remember telling the girl at Walgreens, I bought the phone recorder batteries from, I'm interviewing Lady Gaga. And she's like, wow, who is that? Uh, <laughs> is this right at the peak of like Just Dance had come out and you're correct? It yeah. literally it, it, like Just Dance was so fresh. There was a question about Colby O'Donis. So to put to put it into yes. qu- context for you, that was definitely the period I was at home when Gaga's Just Dance was out. But I also remember on the internet, her album came out in Canada first and it leaked. So what I was like listening to. Boys, 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 like the other singles on the album, and not a single other person knew who this Lady Gaga was that I was No, no. <laughs> I also knew her. She had a feature on the New Kids on the Block album. Yes. Big Girl Now. That's yes. what I also mainly knew her from. That was the first time I ever heard her. <laughs> I did an acoustic version of Boys, Boys, Boys for my senior song in high school. It was a mm. madly. Oh, shit. Just want you guys to know. It was absolutely yeah. unnecessary, and the audience hated it. Go ahead, Lewis. Keep going. I was going to say, <laughs> you should recreate that for us at some point. Um, but I, as I was sitting here at this desk, like, pouring over old notebooks and stuff, I literally found the notes for that interview. And, man, I was a excited young gay man because I had all the questions for her. And, by the way, at the time, she was already being compared to Madonna in terms of how wild and strange she was. And she had awesome answers about being compared to Madonna. She's like, my favorite video is erotica. They could only play it at 3 a.m. Like, she knew all the rules for the times Madonna had been banned and stuff. So you think of them as so, like, at odds now. And she really was like a fangirl, too. It was cool to rediscover. Well, that was pre-Born This Way. So Right, when mm-hmm. she became, was, yes, a thief and enslaver, quoth Madonna. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow, Madonna has currently thieved and enslaved Jeremy Harris, so... I saw that! <laughs> oh, are they together? He popped up on her Instagram. She's Casually on his Instagram. Casually just she popped up, that's... 
Jeremy, love that. You know that's how celebrities pop up on Jeremy's Instagram. (laughs) It's just a photo of him, and then all of a sudden, why are you and Jennifer Aniston drinking water at Sweet Cream? (laughs) (laughs) Wow, if I saw Jennifer Aniston at a Sweet Cream, I would be worried for her. No shade to Sweet Cream, I'm a fan. I would send it in to Dumois. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was just thinking about Dumois. It's funny you bring that up, which we've talked about before on this show. It's this like gossip Instagram where you can see people report things like, you know, I saw uh, uh, Ben Stiller on the street the other day, and that counts as news. Do you know what I think they should investigate? Who is actually a good actor? And by that, I mean, who takes one take to get it on a set? People watch actors Mm. film stuff all the time, and I want to know who's like a Marilyn Monroe who gets it right one out of every 25 times, and who is like (laughs) Julie Bowen on the set of Modern Family, who you know is like razor sharp one take. Mm. I would offer about Demois as well. I have a new theory. Go on. That it is Jack Quaid. Okay, go ahead, Tinfoil Ira. The son of Dennis Quaid, yes. Uh Um, Every other post on Demois is about Jack Quaid. Oh, you think he's in on it? Constantly. Constantly. It's just like, I saw Jack Quaid at the farmer's market. Really nice. And there was one post where they referred to Dennis Quaid as Jack Quaid's father. And I just I, I want to know who cares this intently about Jack Quaid. It's it's kind of like when Penn Badgley's character in Gossip Girl just kept showing up in this yeah. popular gossip yes. blog, and you're like, you're definitely Gossip Girl, you loser boy. <laughs> 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 of course, uh, it's you. Um, I will say that I've heard he is a very lovely person. Matt Rogers, friend of our podcast, told me that um, he actually went to NYU when both of us did. Mm. So, and he said that Jack was very sweet. And y'all never saw him so, there. He, apparently, well, he's out so, all the time. So I don't know why he was. Well, he would he would have been a freshman while Matt was a senior, and I was in grad school then. So I was not hanging out with freshmen. Mm. Mm. Damn, nice. Not James Franco. <laughs> gotcha. Who who also attended NYU when I did. Oh wow. <laughs> Whenever someone goes to like Yale or something, the only thing I'm interested in is what smart celebs were there with you at the time. Like, if you don't have stories about Jennifer Beals or Jodie Foster, I don't care. Uh, no, I was going to say about Jack Quaid. Wait, is he the son of Meg Ryan? Yes. Okay, just making sure. I wasn't clear on that. Yes, he does have one good parent. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we did spend a whole episode of Keep It talking about Dennis Quaid being hot in the late 70s, though, for which I am sorry, but uh, it remains true. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, now his son. Look at the material. We were right. See? <laughs> <laughs> we needed confirmation. But being a Republican made him ugly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As he has one to do that, it'll age you. Anyway, fantastic episode today. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> That's it. We'll see you all later. <laughs> um, just another chat about Dumois. <laughs> no, this episode we are going to discuss the drama going on at Teen Vogue. Nobody's safe. Which is many-tiered. Yeah, there's always drama going on at Teen Vogue. I did, I did have an interview at Condé Nast once for... Not with Anna? No, for Men's Vogue. Mm. Oh. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I have vague memories. Briefly yes. enough. And the interview, uh, I wish I remember who interviewed me now because he's probably still in the editorial ether. But I remember him asking if I had any interest in cars. And I was like, Oof. yeah, yeah, I love Chevys. <laughs> <laughs> Also, cars are just not something anybody has a casual interest in. You either know everything about them or you know nothing. So that strikes me as ridiculous. But the whole thing of Men's Vogue was like it was, you know, male celebrities on the cover looking rugged. 
because they were like, we need men to read this thing because it's for them. But I'm like, the only people who would be reading something called Men's Vogue would be gay men. Right. And maybe women. Let's put hot people on the cover. You can't say Men's Vogue without giving it like a little shoulder shimmy. It's just gay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I absolutely know why I did not get that job, however, though, because I asked, so how often does Anna come down here? <laughs> <laughs> They're like, Grace Coddington, if you're lucky, bitch. <laughs> on today's episode, The Knock LA recently published a series of articles on the history of deputy gangs in the LA County Sheriff's Department. Joining me today will be journalist Cerise Castle, who I'll talk to about researching and writing the incredibly damning report. Real journalism. What's, what's doing that like? Yeah. <laughs> my, my version of journalism is asking, you know, Toni Collette where her accent went in her re- most recent movie. Yeah. That's my investigation. Or Lady Gaga. How do you write paparazzi? Yeah. I need Tell to... us about that. Then Lewis and I have a conversation with CNN's Don Lemon about his new book, This Is the Fire. Wow. That's going to be Look fun at for us. you guys. Again, yes. another, another real journalist. What's wrong with us? Have, have we lost our way? Yeah, strap in. Grab onto your lapels. It's going to be a very serious episode. I feel like actually like the, um, the universe is like converging with early Keep It because our first episode was about Oprah's run for president. And then we just had this big Oprah episode. Uh, and now Don Lemon and... For fans of the show, our second episode was called When Life Gives You Don Lemons. Legacy. <laughs> Legacy listeners yeah. will appreciate that. It was right after he had his, like, Trump is a racist moment. Oh, my God. I can't believe that's already, that would be three years ago then. Wow. wow. Yeah. So, today on Keep It, history. <laughs> As always. <laughs> we'll be right back. This week, The Knock LA published a series of articles on the history of deputy gangs in the LA County Sheriff's Department. Here to talk to me about writing and researching that series is journalist Cerise Castle. Cerise, thank you so much for joining me today on the the show. Um, Why don't you tell me a bit about how you got involved with Knock LA? Yeah, um, I first got involved with Knock LA after I left KCRW um, and was doing some freelancing. I'm still doing some freelancing right now. Um, They've been really great and have published a number of stories of mine about homelessness and local city government. So we had a great relationship and they were really interested in getting involved with me on this project and I thought it would be a great match. Mm -hmm. And this project is called A Tradition of Violence, The History of Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department which is a big story, but for our listeners, and even for me, why don't you um, walk me through what a sheriff's gang constitutes? Yeah, I mean, a sheriff's gang really is no different than a street gang. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think probably the most popular gangs that people are familiar with are the Bloods and the Crips. Mm -hmm. I think the primary difference is that street gangs are generally a social affiliation. Um, There is some crime associated with some street gangs, but not all. Deputy gangs are a lot more dangerous because these are people that are supposed to be enforcing the laws, but oftentimes they are using that power of the badge to abuse the people that they are sworn to serve and protect. And that can include anything from beating people to killing people 
putting people in jail wrongfully. I just finished watching the testimony of a man who was raped by a man who was in alleged to be in a deputy gang. So it really runs the gambit of crime. Mm -hmm. I think what's so shocking about this too is I guess not that it exists because I mean, imagine being shocked by anything that law enforcement does anymore. Uh, But it does still seem just shocking the idea sheriffs in Los Angeles are just actually in street gangs. It is not just this sort of abuse of power within the system, but it's creating other sort of communities for themselves too. 100%. 100%. Yeah. And I think that deputy gangs are really sort of like an outgrowth of the abuse of power that's been able to fester in police departments. They're a very authoritarian group. They believe in following one leader and they don't really like it when they are questioned And that presents itself when deputies that observe this bad behavior complain, try to file reports, and are eventually pushed out of the department. Mm -hmm. How did this series sort of um, come to be in the first place? And, you know, how did you go about even collecting information, you know, about the sheriff's department, which I can imagine would be uh, a dangerous undertaking, to say the least? It's definitely something that I've thought about a lot as far as risk. Um, You know, people that I've interviewed have told me that they have been threatened repeatedly by sheriffs years after that they've brought these things. I have had a man that started investigating the sheriff's department in the 1980s who had several drive-bys on his house as a result of his work. So, yeah, the danger is a very real thing um, on my mind. As far as how I got into it, I mean, I grew up in L.A. County. Um, Something that I was always told by my elders is that the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department is the biggest gang. And it was something that wasn't really questioned, right? I mean, if you live here, I could say pretty confidently that the sheriffs kill at least one person a week or involved in a shooting once a week. So the violence is very tangible and very real. But... I never really was able to find any solid history or detailing of who the gangs were, what sort of crimes they committed, and where they were operating, if they were still in operation, that sort of thing. And for years I searched and I wasn't able to see this. Um, Last summer, I did some reporting on the ground um, during the George Floyd protests and saw police violence very up close um, and had my own experience with it where I was shot with a rubber bullet and I was very determined to figure out who did that to me. And the gang conversation had also sort of been swirling in the public eye as well um, as that was going on. So I started filing CPRA requests because there wasn't really anything else I could do because I was injured from being shot. And I started filing public records requests asking for information about the gangs. And what I found was a list that Los Angeles keeps of litigation that the county has been subject to where deputies in gangs have been involved and there's been some sort of payout. By my calculation, the county has spent just under $100 million on cases related to deputy gangs in the past 30 years. Fuck. Okay. And to know that this litigation exists must mean, obviously, that our elected officials in Los Angeles County know all about these gangs to some extent, yes? And so it's, what can we do to put pressure on politicians besides, you know, having, 
you dig up all this information, <laughs> you know? You know, there's a lot of people that have been doing work advocating for changes to how police are able to conduct their jobs um, as far as what sort of rights they have. Police officers, one thing I learned is that when they are involved in an incident, they have a right to an attorney and they have a right to a union rep mm -hmm. and they have a right to review all evidence. All of that can happen before they speak to an investigator. Um, there are several groups that have been working for years to change that. Um, and, you know, I would really recommend looking to them and seeing what we can do, because like you said, our elected officials have known about this for years. Mm -hmm. um, in the 1980s, uh, Mark Ridley Thomas, who used to be a county supervisor, he was quoted in a piece where attorneys who were investigating the deputy gangs had brought a significant amount of violence to his attention. And he, he's actually defending the police department. You know, people that have investigated these gangs have been called to testify before the county board of supervisors, state senate panels, and even the federal government. And that all happened in the 90s. So none of this stuff is new. You know, mm -hmm. they've known about it for years. I think it's really on us to take this information and use it as we can, whether that be getting justice in court cases that exist or rallying around people that have been doing this work and saying, you know, here we are, what can we do to change this? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people will be really interested in reading this specifically just because of this entire pandemic, you know, in Los Angeles and, you know, the heightening of everything from last summer feels like people are finally feeling like they need to not just take on bigger um, political issues, but take on like many of the issues that are happening in their own city. You know, I think it introduced a lot of people to the idea that you can only really fight police and law enforcement in this country if you do it on a city-by-city city basis and get involved with things that are happening where you live. And so I'm wondering what you hope sort of comes from the publication of these articles and what you want people to largely take away from it while they're reading it. Yeah, I want people to really realize that, you know, unfortunately, most of the time, the deputies that hurt people, that kill people, they get promoted and they're still allowed out on the streets. Most of the deputies that I've found that have been involved in some sort of violence are still working out in Los Angeles County. I think that's an issue. I really hope that people read this and are aware of who is on their streets, who has been given a gun and the privilege to shoot people with pretty much impunity and I hope that people take this time to get involved and rally for those changes that they want to see. Mm -hmm. I feel like another way people could probably get involved, too, is supporting um, Knock, which is a journalism project from Ground Game L.A., you know, it's a community organization that fosters civic empowerment and political engagement. Um, how can people who are living in Los Angeles get involved with helping Ground Game LA and also supporting Knock so that we can continue to see stories like this and others? Yeah, please donate to Knock's Patreon. They're doing a lot of great work. Um, just this project alone cost over $3,000. You know, records are public, but unfortunately, you do have to pay for them. And this was thousands of pages, so it does add up. So please donate to Knox Patreon um, and help projects like these get funded and published. Yes, a reminder that journalism does cost money. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, 
I think a lot of people think that, you know, you're just sitting at home typing, right? You know, but you've got to go get files, you know, you've got to travel places. So, uh, yes, um, any way that you can support Knock and Ground Game LA is um, very helpful. Thank you, Cerise, for being here. Thank you, Ira. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no? Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Two weeks ago, Condé Nast announced that the 27-year-old Axios reporter Alexi McCammon would be the new editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, replacing Lindsay Peoples-Wagner. Not long after the announcement, Alexi's decade-old anti-Asian and homophobic tweets resurfaced, drawing outrage from Teen Vogue's readers, staff, and sponsors. And following the horrific shootings in Atlanta last week, Alexi resigned before she even began. So before we even get into Teen Vogue, I do want to address these shootings in Atlanta last week, uh, which happened right after we recorded. Yeah. It's been a devastating week, honestly, to be seeing all the violent crimes against AAPI in this country. It's been really taxing and disgusting, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And also, it'd be one thing if this were some conversation that had peaked whatever, in some other year. But honestly, in the past two months, there has been such a steady upswing in attention paid to uh, violence against AAPI people, uh, anti-Asian racism, etc. Mm-hmm. So this moment feels especially horrible, especially like, can't you just pay attention to Asian people who say that racism towards them is a specific and gigantic problem? Yeah. And another symptom of exactly what we talked about when we said that people would die from... Donald Trump being president. Mm -hmm. I mean, people literally died from coronavirus uh, and the administration didn't care. And then we literally, you know, had um, 
police officers um, ramping up killing of black people, which led to a lot of the protests last summer. Uh, and this, you know, is a direct line from all of the jokes and the branding and the insistence that the coronavirus was the kung flu, Chinese coronavirus. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, all of the all of the rhetoric around it that was used to deliberately prop up xenophobic ideas, deliberate calculated planned and that's why it's problematic and this is also we can't separate this from the sexism and misogyny that is laced into the situation as well asian american women have a long history of being dehumanized and fetishized at the same time in this country so there really isn't a comfortable position to be as an asian american woman and you know reconciling your identity it's been painful for them and it is such a conversation that requires nuance which people do not have right oh you know uh-uh. because not a shred of it. <laughs> i'm scared to even finish this talk we're gonna have on the podcast today right. but uh because the shootings you know happened at you know atlanta spas and the narrative online was a lot of people saying that you know we need to create legislation that protects sex workers more and you know it was also having to understand that no one is particularly calling these women sex workers you know mm-hmm. they were more you know like um people doing massages you know they were healers in a sense but there's that thin line between you know like work like that which deals with the human body is related to sex work and you degrade people for even doing that type of work so how do you think people necessarily discuss sex workers Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I also just want to add, not to derail this conversation. I love that the previous editor in this question is named Lindsay Peoples Wagner. In case anybody out there is getting her confused with Lindsay Wagner from the Bionic Woman. I've, it's truly only for me that she uses the, the words Lindsay Peoples Wagner. I just want to <laughs> say. <laughs> but also there is something I like about saying you're the Peoples Wagner. Like, I don't know what it means. Mm-hmm. I don't know what a Wagner is, but you are that for the people. <laughs> there's one There's one for the Vox popular, I guess. <laughs> yeah. It brought up a lot of conversations about how we treat and allow Asian women to be fetishized in this country uh, and around the world. And it also brought up, you know, just how jokes against Asian people are so commonplace. I mean, wasn't it a few months ago where we were talking about comedians being dragged for their past? Oh, that's um, what you're calling Shane Gillis? Asian tweets. You're calling him a comedian? Oh, okay. Well, well I... Uh, you and Lauren. I'm, I, I'm, I'm more meant a uh, person that we actually care about, Megan Abrams. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah okay. Okay. Not Shane Gillis. Not that <laughs> no. man. A uh, reckoning for Megan. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, that <laughs> thing, you know. Um, but this was such a different instance because in an instance like the um, Megan thing, for instance, like the, the tweets were from a few years ago and – you could understand the anger towards it because she was an adult. Yes, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and many other comedians who aren't even Shane, um, people who are actually <laughs> comedians, you know, you, you would see, like, that is a thing that, like, people were making jokes about, you know, when they were coming up trying to be funny, you know, sort of, like, towing that line of offense, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I was going to say, when I, when, I, when I got into entertainment journalism, I remember one of my first pitches at the time was, like, casual Asian jokes because of two broke girls, which was yeah. Yeah. Uh, ha- has an Asian character. And like the entire reason they could, quote unquote, get away with those jokes is because they were leveling them at the character himself who then didn't react to them. But you're also creating that character. So you're creating yeah. this yeah. whole you're situation, situation where you're making it normal. It. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's usually that. That's usually the mo for you know the trickling down of like the last residue of how how can we get away with making racist jokes? It's like mm-hmm. well, let's make the character not affected. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's really the Ryan Murphy school of writing too, or used to be. You know, because I think that really um, climaxed with. The New Normal, which had Ellen mm-hmm. Barkin, you know, just sort of like um, saying everything racist and homophobic at people in the show. And the joke is supposed to be, I know that this woman is horrible. Mm-hmm. And so the jokes, the jokes are supposed to be offensive, you know, but you're still the clever ways putting them in every that, episode. How can we still punch down? We need it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. That really reminds me of uh, this is just another example, not quite the same thing, but Seth MacFarlane hosting the Oscars and the I Saw Your Boobs mm-hmm. thing, which was still poking fun at women who are topless in movies, though trying to do it under the guise of, but we know this is stupid and I shouldn't be making a song like this. It's like, but no, there is still intent in this. There still is getting that joke out of this. Yeah. I mean, even speaking of that Seth MacFarlane joke, you know, I mean, like how many times have we seen sketches where um, two men, um, you know, even like, Kissing one another is supposed to be something to laugh at. Right. Or, or to whoop and holler at. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, was it Billy Eichner had a joke where it was given only kiss in porn um, or it's funny. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You know, and so you can think about how the things that we make jokes about trickle down into younger people making jokes about these things and then also violence against these people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the rise in violence against AAPI. There's also been an increase in um, violence against trans women and other LGBTQIA people um, during this pandemic, you know? Uh, And so I was not particularly shocked to see some former tweets from Alexi, but it is interesting to me that she's 27, you know, so the, the tweets are from 10 years ago. The tweets are from when she was 17. Yeah. So I think that this is definitely a different conversation to have about finding a Hollywood writer's old Asian jokes, you know, when they were trying to get a job, right? And a 17-year-old writing racist shit while they're in high school. This is a sticky situation for her, you know, Alexi, because at Teen Vogue, For her to be able to hold that position and stay in that position would be giving off the idea that what you do as a teenager is not important, which is what we believe. Mm -hmm. But if you're working at Teen Vogue, that's not necessarily something that you can espouse to your readers and to like the people that you are advocating for. So along with the multiple other reasons why she had to step down from this position, this is definitely one of them. Mm -hmm. I think what's interesting is like the ire about this situation and like lumping it in with cancel culture. Sorry, I'm throwing up in my mouth to even have to say the two words again. But is I think people should be directing, if they are angry, their anger at the advertisers. Because that's what precipitated her being fired, right? Mm. It, like, to me, almost doesn't even really seem like the editorial staff's decision once, like, that much money is being taken away. Mm-hmm. That's another thing about cancel culture is that it is, like, intrinsically related to some institution's bottom line. Like, it's not really about accountability. It's only about if mm-hmm. the institution in question is going to be losing money. And in this case, with, I would think it was, like, Burt's Bees and another makeup company deciding that they were going to pause their advertisement with Teen Vogue, that's when Teen Vogue was like, oh, we have to do something about this because mm-hmm. Teen Vogue was aware. Anna knew. Anna read the tweets. She was like, girl, please don't ever let these get out. But they still hired her anyway. And yeah. um, I think that's an interesting part of this conversation as well is that I, I think that institution and like what's going on with cancel culture failed this woman. And that's the thing about um, the quote unquote cancel culture 
it never actually hits people. And we've said this before, you know, um, a lot of the people who insist that they're being canceled are rarely being canceled. Um, and the only way to actually do it is through like bottom lines. That's why the only time we've ever affected, say like, um, Tucker Carlson or, you know, the other awful people at Fox is when advertisers do something about it, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. which is, which is always so funny then because then they'll say, Oh, the cancel culture is coming for us, but Republicans love nothing more than a boycott of a product. Totally. Mm-hmm. Oh, please. The the Nike situation, I mean, just like myriad amount of things where they are wielding power and specifically saying, ha ha, you've lost me. Mm-hmm. But no, they love nothing more than that. The only difference is that they are rarely the majority consumers of these products. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whenever they're like, Nike, I'm done. It's like, all right. You don't even buy that many Nikes. Right. Can't picture Tucker Carlson and some Nikes, I have to say. If the carnival barker bow tie industry were at play here, I'd be a little more worried. But mm-hmm. Also, can we talk about like what these tweets actually were and yes. what the implications are of like a white institution firing a black woman about her tweets about Asian people when she was 17? Mm-hmm. Tweets that aren't as uh, offensive as I, I think that the results have led to. I don't know. I would just, I would call them directly racist. Yeah, they I mean, are. Like, talking about Asian eye shapes, et cetera. I mean, it's like right down the line. Mocking facial features in any way just, like, should not be accepted at all. Yes, I totally agree Right, with that. right, right. But, I mean, the, the, it, it's interesting because she had apologized previously. And I, I want to say the consensus is it was a pretty thorough apology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... To pretend now like you didn't hear that apology or it wasn't enough is obviously a bit disingenuous. Yeah, so that is the thing that I always want to return to because um, ignoring everything going on with Alexi, there's constantly this debate about what people do when they're younger and whether or not that matters, you know, Mm -hmm. and also about the growth that people need to exhibit. And so I would say that if I've done something shitty as a teenager – the time to apologize for it is once you learn about it and then you can be a better adult, you know? And I think that there's this insistence that everyone was a perfect teenager, <laughs> you know? Far from. First of all, it's like if we're having so many of these conversations publicly now, we definitely weren't having them then. I mean, we weren't having talks about how these things were inappropriate when I was a teenager. No, every Wiz Khalifa mm-hmm. song had this exact offensive rhetoric yeah. in it. Yeah, you, you knew <laughs> that things were racist, but as we've discussed, the things that were in Two Broke Girls, or like mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, you would just hear like people I went to school with, you know, like making black jokes, you know, around me, because they're like, this is edgy comedy. This is what everybody does, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it is interesting to see at what point when people apologize for things and they seem thorough, are they allowed to then progress in society? Because then the alternative is, do, should they never apologize? Mm-hmm. And I want to point out that these are tweets from a 17-year-old who then did previously apologize and is now 27, as opposed to when, like... Um, something comes out about like some conservative kid uh, has done something awful. And it's usually like that's from so long ago and it's from like a year ago. Yeah. Uh Yeah. You know, (laughs) I I want to point out this is not a situation where someone's like they did something a year or two ago and they're like, that's not the person I am now. 
You know, mm-hmm. I firmly believe someone is not the same person they were at 17 when they're 27. I'm, yeah, I'm sure she doesn't even remember the tweets at all. <laughs> I don't remember something I tweeted from yesterday. Like, there's, it's very difficult to maintain that I remember, Aida, because Girl. I'm off Twitter, but people <laughs> still send me your tweets. <laughs> <laughs> they got to stop doing that. Please, everybody stop doing that. This is another yeah, thing. Yeah, stop snitching. I, dry snitching out here. Nobody's safe. Speaking of nobody being safe, here is my biggest problem with this entire situation that I'm I'm hesitant to bring up, but I know that we can talk about because we're all smart here, and I know that our listeners are also smart. But I find it interesting when the rules that we've established about cancel culture, um, like when white people abuse their privilege and make jokes about black people, it's interesting when we can take those rules that we use for them and pick them up and just apply them on black women. When her comments... Of course we're racist. Of course we're not okay. But they weren't comments that have trickled down from like years of oppression with black people against Asian people. Of course, in the history of America, we have, you know, Japanese internment during the World War, Second World War, and Chinese exclusionary acts. We've had issues as Americans with how we our treatment of AAPI, but not by the hands of black people. And then also folded into this conversation is the relationship between black and Asian people and it's not necessarily a clean one. And I think these are conversations that we don't have as openly, at least not in large national conversations. Yeah, it's this thing where it is global and very American to pit races against one another, you know? And so, um, you know, there are always these conversations about how the excelling of, you know, Asian Americans in schools is often used as a... um, thing to knock black people and assume that they aren't excelling, you know? And then there's also instances where we talk about cultural appropriation from white people, or we don't talk about how, you know, like K-pop borrows so many things from black culture, right? You know, and, you know, I've seen actual K-pop groups in essentially blackface, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, you know? So there's things that are so sticky between both of them. And I think without even getting in the history of blacks and Asians in America, although side note, I would say that people should read um, Passing It On, which is a memoir from um, Yuri um, Kochiyama, um, who is a Asian woman who was friends with Malcolm X. Um, And so that is, that's a book that I've been reading lately about, you know, sort of like the intertwining of our cultures during the civil rights movement. Um, But I really think that if anything, hopefully this is creating a moment where both of our cultures in America um, can be like, yo, these white people ain't on nobody's side. Yeah. They own, you know? So it's time for us to, you know, like Captain Planet link up. (laughs) <laughs> okay Literally, Lenka Lenka yes <laughs> yeah yeah you know um we Kwame y'all are gee let's put on our rings and that let's means I'm Wheeler what a shame yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think Wheeler was cute he, no he definitely was I just identify more with I guess Lenka I actually really feel like gee but all right <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> Aida, Aida can be um, the one with the with the monkey and the the heart powers. Oh, why does that sound like me already? <laughs> <laughs> he was very pure. Yeah, just like Aida. Yeah. I do want to also point out that one of the things involving the Alexi stuff is people wondering uh, how she got hired in the first place. She right. should have mm-hmm. never been there. I'm mad that she got fired, but I'm most, mostly mad that she got hired. Yes, <laughs> I don't know how we go from just like, being a reporter at Axios to all of a sudden I'm running 
teen vogue. Like when I'm sitting with Anna, I'm really sitting with Anna. <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> I'm sure she's come up before. Ira, are you an Anna Wintour fan? I'm not. I'm. I'm not a stan, but I've. Res- I got respect for. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I never really resolved what I thought of her. I. I mean, like again, we already brought up the September issue where too many issues with these covers. Right. Right. Yes. For years, you know, and like, let's talk about the um, Stanford prison experiment that she did on <laughs> Andre Leon Talley. <laughs> <laughs> But by the way, which reminds me, if you haven't seen the documentary about Diana Vreeland, former Vogue editor, uh, the mm. eye the has to travel, pretty good. And she's also <laughs> very fabulous. So mm. the history's there for those who want it. Well, I'm glad that we solved anti-Asian racism. Yeah, in five minutes. Today. <laughs> we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a Tuesday morning, you know. Yeah. yeah. In conclusion, I would just like to say that we always make jokes about how woke Teen Vogue is, right? Yeah. The idea of this is that we want to teach young people to be better people but i think in addressing the fact that we want younger people to be better people we need to acknowledge that the current institutions like teen vogue which are trying to teach younger people to be better people weren't always in place prior to now Mm -hmm. and so if we want people to become better people we need to allow the space for them to become better and that's it. And which isn't saying, you know, coddle people. Well, it's also yeah. just telling you, like, the internet's a public place and the internet doesn't forget. So, I mean, that's the yes. universe in which we live, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once again, delete your damn tweets. Exactly. Just simple search, yeah. at your name, and then every racial slur that you can think of, if you've ever said it. Like, were they still up? I think there were screenshots of old tweets that had been deleted. Oh, because she had apologized before, then there's screenshots. Girl, imagine you are working at Teen Vogue, you thinking you might get hired for editor, because you've been working there for like 20 years, and then a young person comes up, and you're now an underling. Girl, I'm reporting those tweets. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Bye. Uh, Sorry, Alexi. It was some adult (laughs) at Teen Vogue who was like, I'm tired of always having to work for teens. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is not what I signed up for. I love this diabolical Emily Blunt and Devil Wears Prada side of Aida showing up right yeah. now. Well, it does make Listen, sense. Last night I had a dream I was married to John Krasinski. Aida Krasinski, the whole thing. It was a mess. Oh, wow. Mm. So, oh, okay. I don't know why. It's not in my, you know. Did y'all make love on a bed where the sheets were just American flags? <laughs> yeah, you know I love Italians. <laughs> I love a white man dalliance. I'm still mad at John Krasinski for somehow convincing us he's an action star or that he has a face for it. You know, I would just like to know the um, secret shadowy group in Hollywood that just decides which funny white man they're going to put abs on (laughs) this week and make an action star. (laughs) Sometimes they don't do uh, a white guy and that's how we got Kumail. That's very true. Sometimes he sneaks <laughs> right. in he sneaks into the studio and the dojo and he starts grinding too. Yes. But you know, I'd love to be plucked. Oh yeah, just chosen. Mm-hmm. Ira, you're next. Yeah, you know. It's easy to get those as you know when you're um when Marvel is like, Hey, you know what? We're just gonna pay you to work all day with this trainer for several months. That's all you're doing. I know, you have no choice. Well, they, they've done Southeast Asians now, so I think the black community is next. And Ira, I will nominate you as the person that I put up for potential next Marvel superhero. Thank you. But you, but you know it's going to be like, I don't know, uh, 
Keenan Thompson. <laughs> <laughs> that that too. It could be that. I'll do a seance and talk to Stan Lee tonight. <laughs> or like Brian Tyree Henry. Mm. He's going to come out looking like Stefan Urkel. <laughs> One of my favorite people. Um, I, Jesse Tyler Ferguson is my vote. I don't think we have like the ripped 44-year-old redhead um, star yet. Okay, I think it's okay, time. okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. That's your marginalized community, Gingers. That's very fair. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. <laughs> I got some got some older ripped gingers on OnlyFans. I'll sing you. Okay, well I don't need those, oh, but I'll right. doing the Lord's work. Doing the Lord's work. Uh, I'm just trying to be helpful. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back with CNN's Don Lemon to discuss his new book, "This Is the Fire: What I Say to My Friends About Racism." Hey there, Brenda. It's Carol. Exactly. So which leg are we operating on? You mean arm. It's all connected. Asking the right question can greatly impact your future. Are you sure you're an orthopedist? Actually, I'm a Sagittarius. Especially when it comes to your finances. Do you have a question? Are you a certified financial planner? Yes, I'm a CFP professional. CFP professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Our guest today made the terror of the last presidential administration a little more tolerable. As one of the only news media personalities willing to use the word racist to describe a racist, he made cable news bearable, and now he is not only an anchor, but an author. Please welcome the author of This is the Fire, CNN's Don Lemon. I'm excited about this. I'm kind of scared of you guys. Are you? No, we love that. Yeah, no, no. You, you have like actual adult skills. We're over here like ranking the best, best supporting actress wins of all time. Please. Is Betty Davis in there? She's she's the best actress winner, but best she does actress, have two. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. She should have had three. That's oh, what, what do you think? Oh, for uh, All About Eve. Didn't she win for All About Eve? Or no. Nope. She Dangerous and Jezebel, thirty-five and thirty-eight. Uh, look at you. I love it. Yeah. You're probably going to get me in trouble and eat me up and then I'll be you know, <laughs> having to apologize for something I said. <laughs> Let's do it. I, I just want to say that there's a first superficial layer to this when like seeing a news anchor in like casual Friday attire, I already feel like I'm so shocked. Like I truly forget you guys have real lives. Do you, do you feel like people are casually intimidated by you when they meet you? No, it's so, I think people aren't casually intimidated. They're stunned usually. Because they're used to seeing us, you know, either we're at like a, you know, red CNN jacket and we're blowing in the wind. It's like, oh, look out the wind. Or they're used to seeing us with a face full of makeup and lighting and a necktie and jacket. And so it's so out of context when people like see you at the pet store or, you know, you're getting a pizza at like two in the morning after having too many beers. And they're like, wait a minute. You look like the guy on CNN. It's like, yeah, I am. Oh, no, no, no. Everybody come over here. Look, it's the guy who's Don Lemon. So that's, yeah, they're usually not terrified because when you're on someone's television, when you're on the little screen, it's like mm-hmm. you're in their home, so you're part of their family. Yes. So I think people have the <gasps> reaction to movie stars who are on the big screen. Mm. But that's all changing because everybody's on the small screen right now, right? Plus, you know, we've seen you lit on New Year's. So. Hey, True enough. <laughs> I, I, I almost said, hey, girl, hey. Uh, 
Uh, of course. I mean, yeah. but listen, I'm having a good time on New Year's Eve, but there is a little bit of Dean Martin in there, you know, where you're just like, hey, everybody, I'm having a great time. And so you're not <laughs> quite as lit as everybody thinks. By the way, c- casually pretty good uh, Dean Martin impression, too. You had the yeah. facial expressions. Oh, yeah. You got to get you get into it. So, you, you know, you get you have a you know a couple glasses of wine or you have like a beer or a cocktail and you get into it. And it's fun, you know, because there's a bit of sort of going along with the crowd when you're drinking. I think mm-hmm. most people are not. You can tell when someone is really hammered, and then you're like, okay, it's time for you to go home. Or if you're just kind of going on, because everybody's like ready to party usually when they're drinking. Well, but the, anyway, the moral of my story is this is not really casual for me. This is kind of like you throw a jacket on. Casual for me is like a white or a black T-shirt or a T-shirt that has some sort of something on it that, and a pair of pajamas, bottoms or sweatpants for me. That's my real casual. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to get into the title of the book first this is the fire and you open up with a letter to your nephew a la uh james baldwin's the fire next time fire next time yeah i love james i have a whole row devoted to him on my shelf because he's my favorite author uh and i want to ask what is it about baldwin um that you love so much uh and also what inspired you to be like you know what i want to do have my book be sort of like my fire next time. What is it about? Are you really asking me that question? I mean, what about I, James Baldwin is not to love? James Baldwin has sort of been has been like the black revolutionary author or um, literary presence for black people forever, right? Mm-hmm. And re- not just for black people, but for intellectuals mm-hmm. and for people who believe in justice and and the truth about America. Uh, and there are even conservatives who agree you know, staunch conservatives who agree with much of what James Baldwin writes because he's telling the truth about black people and our relationship to this country and uh, our relationship to our fellow countrymen. And so James Baldwin, I picked up the the first book I read by him, by the way, was Giovanni's Room, which I'm sure you've read, Mm. you know, which Mm -hmm. he writes about being a gay man. If you didn't know anything about the author, you would think he was like some English, you know, waspy white guy writing about a gay love affair. And then it's this black man, American man from Harlem, who's writing about this love story among uh, this, you know, sort of interracial couple in France. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing. So that was the first book. And then after I read that, I read The Fire Next Time, and I fell in love with James Baldwin, and I read his entire canon, like mm-hmm. within months after that. Mm-hmm. Long story short, I know this has been going on a long, long time, but my response, after the George Floyd incident and the protests of the summer, I had to do something. And I had been reading James Baldwin. I always I read The Fire Next Time a couple times a year. I've been reading it since a, you know my freshman year in college, um, in my early twenties. And I just felt like I had something to say, and I had to do something. And I couldn't be with my family. Usually, my family comes to visit me for the summer. The entire family, including my great nephews and my nieces and my mom and my brother-in-law and my sister and everyone. And I couldn't be with them. And I couldn't love them. And I was feeling guilty about the world that I had created, and I was going to that my great nephews were. Uh, we're going was going to inherit so because i couldn't be with them you can't call a 14 year old and say i love you so much and they're like ew uncle don what the hell man you know <laughs> and so i put it in this letter to them about how beautiful i thought he was and how i hoped that he would embrace his beauty and his blackness with an ease that i was not able to do and that he would love himself that he would learn to love himself a lot earlier than i learned to love myself and that was the genesis of the book much as james baldwin did to his nephew with um 
100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation when he wrote that letter in the fire next time to his nephew. Mm -hmm. I also just want to say about James Baldwin that he is routinely called witty, but on occasion, he was extremely funny, too. And I want to say, in particular, after Norman Mailer wrote something about how James Baldwin could never walk through the world the same way as he does. James Baldwin responded, I couldn't walk through the world the same way as you do because they do not have your shoulders, which <laughs> let's let's get into the origins of our current shade universe right here. There he is. Um, because because, girl, I would not want to. I mean, look at that. Yeah, anyway, <laughs> I don't I don't have your hips. <laughs> but, but to me, reading this book, I'm actually surprised at how much of it had to have been written in the past year, which strikes me as a very stressful writing process. How Was it All stressful it. to write? It was stressful to finally say, okay, I'm going to do this. Because I wrote a book that released in 2011. It was such a personal thing. In the book, I mean, I wrote like one or two pages about coming out. And that was a whole thing. Don Lemon comes mm-hmm. out. And, and, you know, for gay people, they were like, where have y'all been? Like, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Transparent, which yeah. is very difficult to find. Oh, it is. You, but, yeah. but guess what? Okay. My baby empire. I bought the rights back. I own my stuff. Okay. Now. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. You I, own your yeah. masters. I own my You're masters. Like <laughs> Amy, Amy Mann over here. Yeah. <laughs> so you will be able to um, to find transparent again, which I think is good. I think people should read it. But um, it was so personal and so difficult. And I don't know if you guys have ever written a book, but it's the process of writing a book is really tough. But I think even harder is also the promotion of the book, because you have to keep it in people's consciousness, especially now. Uh, when, you know, we have such short attention spans. And so, you know, Don Lemon has a book and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, Meghan Markle interview. Oh my gosh, Oprah did this. And so we're like on to the next thing. And so the promotion is really hard. But yes, the book poured out of me, but the whole process of doing it is, is longer and more difficult than you think. Because you have to write it and then you have to give it to editors and you have to give it to the collaborator and everyone has to go over it. And then you have to make sure you get on people's lists for promotion and that you're on track with whatever is happening in the book world and blah, 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 blah. And we knew that it was going to be a short process. So I started like in September, October, and we were done with the bulk of the book by November mm-hmm. or December. I mean, it was fast, fast, mm-hmm. fast, fast. So I would say one difference between this and then Baldwin's book is, is that Baldwin is, is a much better writer. I mean, I look, I, I'm not trying you to, know, Baldwin, but there's I only one Baldwin. Say, this, is a tribute, this is a tribute to Baldwin. This is me paying my respects to Baldwin. It's not mm-hmm. me trying to be Baldwin at all. Let's oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, cause the, it's also, this is the fire. What I say to my friends about racism. Are you, do you find that you're often having combos about um, race with the people in your lives? I'm having conversations about race with the people in my life. On, on a regular basis, as you know, as a man of color, you usually have those mm-hmm. with like-minded people, and those are usually people of color. There are some white people who you have those conversations with. I have it, of course, I'm in an interracial relationship, so I have it. But I mean, it really should have been, what do I say to my friends about white people? Larry Wilmore and I were having a conversation. He goes, I think mm-hmm. you left out a word. And immediately I knew exactly what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> because after, when George Floyd happened, I got so many calls from people, you know, hey, Don, help me out. Mm-hmm. What do I do? I, and, and, and they were quite sincere. I don't know what to say to my kids about this. I don't want my kids to grow up in a world like this. I don't have the vocabulary to be able to, to have this conversation with my kids. Um, I don't have the tools to be able to talk to anyone about this. I'm quite frankly afraid of people thinking that I'm racist or biased. And I'm not. And, I, yeah. and it's like, okay, calm down. Or, um, you know, just I don't know what to do. I feel like I've let down my black friends or I have not been... Uh, a close enough ally and on and on and on and on. And that, so that was part of the reason I mm-hmm. wrote this because 
I got a lot of texts, a lot of emails, a lot of phone calls, a lot of, you know, DMs and whatever. And so I said, mm -hmm. well, why don't I put this down in writing? And the main part of the book is about accountability, though, and about mm -hmm. being able to broach these tough conversations. But beyond broaching the tough conversations, doing the work as well. Mm -hmm. I actually want to ask about that one moment you just mentioned, uh, sort of maybe a feeling that you had let down some black friends. Uh, what's interesting about... Um, we're excited to have you here because I feel like one of our first episodes of the podcast in 2018 was when there was sort of a public consciousness that you had shifted into, I'm, you know, you called Donald Trump a racist, you know, you're, you're talking about uh, race a lot more on CNN. And I feel like, you know, prior to that, social media was not on Don Lemon's side all the time. Uh, but then there was a shift where now people are like, oh, look at Don speaking from the heart. And I would love to know, was that a conscious decision for you to sort of embrace maybe who you felt you'd always been? Or maybe you had some moment where you're, where you're like, you know what, I just need to be more real on television than I've been for other people before, you know, because that's a contrast with you holding up the sign with the N-word on CNN. I love that moment. You love that moment? Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> I, I, listen, I, I've always spoken about race on CNN. I've always spoken about mm -hmm. what's going on. I've never been afraid to uh, tackle race. But I also think that I, I don't think that social media gave me a fair shake because I think people get on and someone wants to be snarky and then another, another person is snarky and another person it's oh, you know, he's this. What I was trying to do is get people to open up and, and have a discussion about it. The reason I did the N-word sign, which I, don't, I still don't get why people don't understand, is because the president, who was black, said the actual word out loud in an interview mm -hmm. as we were talking, having the discussion about removing the Confederate flag from state houses around the country. That, that's what was in the news. And I said, there are two things that are in the news right now that, that is offensive to a lot of people. This flag and this word. Mm -hmm. And everybody lost their mind. I'm like, you're going to, why are you losing your mind about this word? The president actually said it, but you didn't yell at him for saying it, but you yell at me for holding it up as a journalist on television while we're talking and while we're in the middle of a discussion about what we do with this word and what we do with this flag. That is what I'm supposed mm -hmm. to do as a journalist. I would say maybe it was also the juxtaposition of the wording of which is worse, the N-word or cracker. And there was no, one no, of the no, words. No, 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 that was, that was two years before. Oh, that I, two years before. I had done okay. that two years before and no one said a word. I did a special on the N-word. No mm -hmm. one had done that. No journalist, black, white, anyone. Mm -hmm. And my boss said, will you do a special on the N-word? And I said, of course I will. You know it's going to be controversial. I did an entire hour on the N-word that advertisers were, I'm sure, afraid of and did not want to sponsor. But yet we as CNN did it. And in that, in the promotion of that and in shooting it, I held up cards that said cracker, nigger, mm -hmm. on all kinds, I can't put whatever words, whatever ra uh, racist or racial epithets. And I held all those words up and showed them. Nobody complained. Mm. And at the end of the day, the whole point of it was like, there is a power in the N-word that no other word in the English or any other um, language holds that power. And so I can hold up all these words, but the moment I hold up this word, people feel a certain kind of way about it. 
And so that's what that was about. But that was two years before and no one said a word. People were like, oh my God, I love that Don Lemon did the N-word special. I love that he's bringing light to the N-word. And then as a journalist, when I said it on television, when I said, I don't think journalists should say N-word because if, if you're doing a story and someone is actually calling someone that word, they're not saying, hey, N-word. Mm -hmm. If I am reporting about a court case where someone used the N-word and then they got into a confrontation, the person didn't say N-word. They said the actual mm -hmm. word. And I believe a, for a journalist not saying it is sanitizing it. I think people should hear and feel the power of that word because it's so offensive. It offends the ears and it offends the intellect. And so that's how I feel about it. And, and, but no one gets mad, or I guess some people do, when people bastardize it in music. When they're just like, hey, you know, whatever, and they're just singing, I'm like, well, why don't you get mad at the rapper? What is the reason for him to say it? If you think it's a legitimate enough reason for people to use it in music, then shouldn't a journalist who's actually reporting on what's happening, the truth about what's happening, and giving accurate information about what's happening, shouldn't a journalist be able to use that word? I think maybe the argument is also that the, you know, if Nicki Minaj is saying nigga, you, she uses it in her regular life, you know? And I think there's the difference in, you know, a journalist not being completely familiar with the word. I mean, I guess that's the argument for more black journalists because maybe then they can actually say the word and report. I on say it on TV, you know that. Yeah, like, I know they, you do. Listen, but I, pick, I, I, I upset, pick my moments. By the way, I love your nails. But anyways, go uh, on. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no, I upset my high school class uh, at the all boys Catholic high school that I went to that was all white. Uh, whenever we would read Tom Sawyer, I said nigger out loud. And I remember a classmate was like, I wish that like Ira didn't say the word out loud when we're reading it. And I said, I'm going to say whatever I want to. Right. So I get it. Yeah. The thing that, that really sort of hurt me about that is that I think that as the people who were upset by that, and a lot of them were African-Americans, is that they were limiting journalists, especially young black journalists, as to how mm. they, what they could do. And they were putting mm. on me restrictions and uh, a different set of rules than they do for white journalists. Mm. And I think that black journalists should have the freedom to be and do just as much as their black or white mm. or, or Asian or whatever counterpart, mm -hmm. because... I understand that there are we have different standards and that people look at me differently than they look at a Wolf Blitzer or a Jake Tapper or an Anderson, what have you, because they feel mm -hmm. they I owe I have a certain responsibility to the community. I understand that. But I don't want to hinder young black journalists to think that they have to somehow moderate themselves in order to fit in in a certain way with the culture or with they should be free to be journalists with just as much freedom as any other person in the world. And that's, I was upset. I thought that especially the, the black, uh, the National Association of Black Journalists did not understand that. And they were inhibiting young black journalists from just being mm. free, from being emancipated, being able mm -hmm. to be the journalist, whatever journalist they wanted to be. I wanted to talk about how uh, on the news, specifically within the Trump era, let's say Trump said something completely offensive and any of his memorable phrases he shouted off in the past four years. And then it was maybe a CNN journalist to respond to it. And routinely they would say something like, wow, Trump just said something extraordinary as opposed to calling it racist, et cetera. Are there versions of reporting on Trump that you are annoyed with that uh, gave him too much cover, do you think? Yeah, I think we gave him a pass for far too long. Certain uh, immediately... I, I did not give him a pass. I know people think like, oh, you gave him a lot. I, I interviewed him and I asked him, I said, 
you know, people think you're racist. Are you a racist? And people, and he, I was one of the first people he used that line on, maybe one of the first journalists. I know he said it to other people before. I am the least racist person. And I said, are you racist? Are you bigoted? Uh, I asked him if he was homophobic. I, I think I, asked, I did ask him, are you Islamophobic? Mm-hmm. All of those things, because that was the word on the street about him. And not necessarily word on the street. The reason I was asking him is because of the birther movement and because mm-hmm. of the Central Park uh, the exonerated five. His actions on both of those things were very racist. I wanted him to explain himself. This goes back to my whole idea about giving black journalists freedom to be the journalists that, that they um, should be. Because I was the only one as a journalist who was taking the heat and saying that he's racist or mm-hmm. calling out his people who came on the air and tried to make excuses for his racism. I would say, I'm not having that person on because they're lying. I'm not having that person on because they're obfuscating. I'm not having that person on because they're, what they're saying and doing is racist. And that was hard to do in the beginning because nobody was doing that. And I wasn't sure that I was going to have the support of my bosses. Luckily, I did. And they said, that's how you feel as a journalist. This is your show. Say your piece. And I, the first one to call him a liar. It was tough to say the president of the United States is a liar. And I said, he's a liar. And people were like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you called the president a liar. I'm like, well, he's lying. What else am I going to call him? And so mm-hmm. after the whole shitholes comment, I just had enough. And I opened my show and said, look, the president of the United States is racist. Mm-hmm. Sorry, point blank, racist. And that was, I think, a turning point for a lot of journalists. An interesting thing um, that was in your book, sort of off of that, too, is um, you, you have a passage about um, your sister's passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you talked about how um, even people who you vehemently disagree with, like a Sean Hannity and like a Megyn Kelly, reached out to you to offer their condolences. Uh, and I was just interested in, like, in the moment where you're like, you can call, say, Donald Trump is racist, how should we be talking about journalists who work for, say, a Fox News, where it's, sure, they're journalists and some of them are doing their job, but how do we as normal people who want to discuss the media talk about people who work at a place that props up racism? You say that. You Mm -hmm. say that about them. I say that about them. Look, I'm in a different position than you are. You can say that. Absolutely. I, I don't like to give people like that the spotlight, and I don't like to give them, to elevate them any more than needs to be. Mm-hmm. If any of those people, if Sean Hannity wants to say something or whatever, he's got a platform, he can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever, I, you know, I, I, I don't like to play that media gotcha game, but in this, mm-hmm. especially environment, there are things that people are doing that are dangerous to not only the, the country or the Republic, but to their fellow man, as we saw with the insurrection. When you fill mm-hmm. people's heads full of lies, then they act upon those lies. They think that they're telling the truth. So they're like, hey, uh, they act out of righteousness when they're totally wrong. And so I think you just say it. I think you're, you're free to be able to discuss those people and say it, whatever it is that you want to say about them. But there are others who use Black people as a foil to capitalize on their success and on their careers. And mm-hmm. I don't like to give those people shine because you know what they want? They want Don Lemon to say their name. They want Don mm-hmm. Lemon to discuss him so that they can say, see, and then the Twitter thing starts and the social media thing starts. And then it becomes a whole thing about, yeah, that liberal hack, Don Lemon, that race baiting, whatever. And it's like, I'm not even going to engage you on that level because that is what you want because you are not relevant and you're looking for me to give you a degree of relevance. Guess what? Have a seat. Go away. I'm not interested. 
but you can, mm-hmm. you're free to do that. And I would encourage you to do it. And when oh, I, we do, and I think when, <laughs> when there's time for me to do it, there's a time and a place I'll do it. But I, I pick, I choose my battles with those because yeah. those people are looking for that from me. Of course, Megan's looking for a platform. Okay, um, now I don't even say it. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, one thing I wanted to ask um, before. But why we wrap is that? Too. But why is that always people who are who have nothing to do with black culture, who have no understanding of what it's like to be a minority or a marginalized person in this country? Why do they always run to social media to criticize issues of black issues, marginalized people's issues, to try to gain some sort of relevance? What does that say about them? Why, why would you do that? Because there are so many positive ways to engage on these issues coming from a, a position of understanding, right? Mm-hmm. And of, if you do believe in family values, of true values, why do you choose to engage in that way, on that level, and particularly on these issues? It says a lot about you, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, one last thing I want to bring up is um, your book also brings up um, a lot of the rhetoric from the past year with the protests, you know, about um, defund the police. And I want to ask specifically about um, these two sentences, because to me, they sort of seem to contradict one another. When you say that um, defund the police is not a productive thing to say, it promotes a startled knee-jerk response, potentially alienating people who might have been allies and implies an unrealistic snap of the fingers. Simplicity for those who are willing to fight for change but can't stomach the long haul. But then also later in that chapter, you say, black people have been told to go as slow as they push for change, but how much more slowly could we have gone? And what has been the reward for the virtue of patience? So if we've been going too slowly uh, and we want change now, then how is um, a phrase that cuts straight to the heart, like defund the police, too much in that moment, I guess. I don't, I don't really see how those two are contradictory because you're talking about a slogan and you don't have to use that slogan in order to mm-hmm. do it. The reality is, is that it's a terrible slogan. Mm. If you read today, there's, a, there's an article in, I think it's Politico, about the argument uh, and the conversation that's going on with Democrats and progressives about defund the police, especially mm-hmm. when it comes to the midterms and how it actually, I know people didn't believe that it hurt them in 2020. It really did hurt them and it potentially will hurt them in 2022 because you don't want to give, you never want to give your enemies ammo. You always want to mm-hmm. be strategic. And I know that people want to go 100 all the time and say, oh my God, it's time and we must do this. Of course, my patience is out and it's running thin, but also within that patience there's, and, and within my 55 years on this earth, I have a wisdom that some young people don't have because they want to go 100 all the time, which is fine. I respect that. And as you, if, if you know about the events of the last summer, I said the young people have it. The older folks, the establishment need to get on board. We need to respect them. We need to show their support. We're not doing enough of that. We're quietly saying things and not doing enough. But I don't think that that is a popular slogan. Defund the police is mm-hmm. a slogan that is not productive because when you say it, even your allies here, get rid of the police, take the police mm-hmm. money away, take the police off the street. And no one wants that. As someone who lives in Harlem, as someone who lives in a neighborhood where we need the police, I don't want to defund them. I want to make them better. I want to take the money and allocate and put it in better places. But that does not mean defunding the police. Now, if you want to reimagine policing in this country, which I am 100% in agreement on, 
that not all police mm-hmm. need to go on calls that have to do with mental health issues or uh, with certain kind of domestic issues. I mean, we need mental health workers mm-hmm. and all of that. But I don't want police defunded. And I and trust me, you know, the progressives and the young people that are out there, when you hear from Democratic people who are running for office that the defund the police slogan hurt us, you need to think about it. Mm-hmm. Because it's why are you giving your your enemies ammo? Why are you helping your opponent? If you want to get something done, fine, have some passion about getting it done, but be strategic and smart about what you're doing. And slogans matter. John Lewis will tell you the same thing when he was here. There were issues of slogans that came up during the civil rights movement and they would say, okay, yeah, we can do that. We can't do this because this is going to bounce off instead of being absorbed. Defund the police bounces off of everyone except for the people who are stubborn about it and don't want to hear that it is a terrible, awful slogan. The idea behind it is a good idea. The slogan is bad. That's an easy fix. Get rid of the slogan. Come up with something else and stop putting so many apples into a slogan. Okay, it's fine. The slogan is bad. We get it. Get rid of it. And fight for all the other issues. Come up with another name. That's not so hard to do. That's called compromise. That's called strategy. That's called being smart. That's called being wise. That's called getting your issues done and handled without getting stopped at a roadblock. That means nothing. It means nothing in the long run. Prioritize. Sorry. (laughs) No. I'm interested in this conversation because as somebody who was deeply uneducated about policing up until last year, ignorantly so, to me that phrase did crystallize something for me. It puts together a whole bunch of loose ends I didn't understand before. So I don't find it to be useless either. I didn't say it was useless. I just don't think it's productive in this moment. Mm -hmm. I think it was very useful in starting a conversation. Mm -hmm. Here's what you have to remember. Politics is about winning. If something is causing you to lose in politics, you got to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. You want to win. The thing is, the thing that you have to remember is that you don't want to win an argument. You want to win the office. Mm -hmm. We absolutely (laughs) agree on that, you know? (laughs) And, you know, I think it's just it's the there's been a long history of protest and, you know, defund the police didn't even come from this past year. You know, it's like it, it inspired me and a lot of other people to even investigate and read up on the police abolitionist movement, which has existed for decades. If you're explaining in politics, you're losing. Mm. And sometimes it's just as simple as build that wall. And so if you can understand how powerful the slogan build that wall was for conservatives and people who cared about the border, then you should understand the power and defund the police as well. That a slogan can have a positive power and that it it can encourage people to go to vote because of it. Then it has the power as well to discourage people to go and vote because of it. It can be just as detrimental to your cause as it can be positive to your cause. Do 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 you understand what I'm saying? I want to say that I concur with a lot that you're saying. I I, I want to add also that I think in particular liberals are used to like the minorest, strangest things completely alienating the other side, that it feels not prudent to be utterly, I don't want to say mindful, but to water everything down because they'll always find something alienating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. They'll always find something alienating, but there are uh, certain things that rise to a certain level in this culture that really 
um, that people are passionate about. And I think policing is one of them. So you, if you want to accomplish, again, I'll say it again, if you want to accomplish what you want, need to accomplish with policing in this country, then you have to be smart and strategic, not only about what you want, but in your messaging as well. And messaging, as we know, is really important when it comes to politics. All you have to do is, and look, that's, that's how simple Donald Trump was. Wasn't smart. The, I mean, it was smart in a sense, but they weren't um, the sophisticated uh, plans with nuance. It was easy slogans. Build a wall, right? Make America great again. Boom. Simple. You may not agree with it. it may piss you off, but it was just that mm-hmm. simple. When you say defund the police and everybody goes, ah, and then you're having to explain what it means, you've lost. Uh-huh. Uh, (laughs) anyway (laughs) yes Uh, thank you for being here don i mean there's so many things that we could have talked about but i know but i love these kind of conversations is that is that a gray i used to get gray on my toes and um some people were offended by from what oh on your nails on my nails nails. yeah oh no these are uh they're black they're matte black nails I used yeah. to get Matt Gray, and I was very proud of them, and I thought they looked really good. And guess what? Women loved them. Guys were scared of it. Oh, well, guys like mine. So, <laughs> you know. Progress. Cory Booker said he loved my nails. So, Okay, Cory Booker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we love Cory. Yeah. <laughs> He's easy on the eyes, too. He is. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. We need theme music for this. God, it's been years. We need some theme music. We do. We we need a Keep It theme. Something in the Mighty Mouse realm. Something where we're like amped Lewis. up. Lewis. Should we do like love it? Should we like have a submissions for a Keep It theme song? Yes. Everybody get your mm. little pianos out. I want kind of like an eye to eye end of the goofy movie sort of vibe mm. for this. Yeah. So it, we lure people into thinking it's going to be jaunty and then we're just like, Rah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all y'all download GarageBand and let us know what's up. Yeah. Right. Get to beating. Billie Eilish and her brother hit like 10 buttons and come up with an album. So you can do it uh-huh. too. Yeah. Billie Eilish and Phineas. Because uh, I just watched that documentary and I absolutely adore them. I love them too. Also, oh, they God, are cool people. people. Yes. Precious. Yes. They are. Also, so their, their relationship, Phineas is a Leo and my best friend is a Sagittarius. And we were watching it and I was like, this is creepy. This is uh, they act the same way? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Exactly Both the same way signs. as me and Both Royce. Signs. I love yeah. to watch Lewis's face when we talk about Zodiac. <laughs> I'm just like, it's a study on humanity. <laughs> to see. I, I'm, I'm like Joan of Arc literally burning at the stick. Just my face. It's just like dripping into uh, my shirt. Well, you are st- a fire st- sign. <laughs> you're stigmata. <laughs> <laughs> I, which I brought up. The, I brought up the movie Stigmata recently because of Natalie Imbruglia's "Identify," which is a banger song written by Billy Corgan, a person I wish oh, I didn't God. have to bring up right now. But yeah, <laughs> okay, keep it, keep it, keep it. Yeah, yeah. All I remember about that movie is Patricia Arquette running around, I guess, New York and being on subways and like just bleeding <laughs> and people looking at right. her like, "What are you doing, bitch?" It was really good. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what she does at award shows now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Agita, drop your keep it on us. 
Okay, my keep it this week. Spring has sprung, but the allegations are coming back out. <laughs> you guys know Thomas Middleditch, who mm. you may know he plays Richard Hendricks from Silicon Valley on HBO, or he's that guy who like pops up at really inconvenient times to sell you Verizon. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> those are that's his legacy so far. Um, I used to love Thomas Middleditch. He was in a lot of college humor sketches and Jake and Amir. Mm. When I, I, it's just one of my favorite comedians growing up um only to find out recently that there are allegations of sexual misconduct against thomas middleditch from an actress by the name of hannah harding mm-hmm. um hannah's come out and said that thomas middleditch made lewd sexual overtures i think it's important to note how classy we have to talk about our own sexual misconduct well i think it was just a lewd sexual overture you know yeah, like why too serious I would have been at that journalist like, this man touched me and I'm mad. (laughs) But, you know, there she went. And um, she also went on to talk about how he groped her and her girlfriend that she was with at a dance floor at a, and it's also important to note that the articles did not let us forget that this was a goth club by the name of Cloak and Dagger here in Los Angeles. It's a place that Thomas Middleditch frequented. Say all that to say, Hannah Harding went to go report this to the people at Cloak and Dagger, and of course it was brushed under the rug because, you know, they didn't want to kick out a high-profile A-list celebrity like Thomas Middleditch, so they allowed that to happen. B, B and plus. more allegations are B, coming B out. B, B plus. Exactly. Well, <laughs> well, he has all those Verizon commercials, and that's kind of like, it's a lot, it's a lot of breadth there. It's a lot of, lot of um, access. But I'm just, first of all, clearly so frustrated about the sexual misconduct, but not shocked. Um, what I'm mostly mad about is that this woman went to her workplace and tried to report it and was treated poorly again Mm -hmm. and was told to shut up about it because that is just, you know, the type of behavior that we see whenever we try to tell people in larger institutions that we are being attacked in a place where we're supposed to be comfortable in a place where we come to make money. And I say again, all that to say too, that I hope that people who employ Thomas Middleditch now, like he has a voice, he voices a character on Solar Opposites. He's on a show on CBS right now. I hope that these employers take the proper steps to show these women that these allegations are going to be taken seriously. And he gets fired. I'm just sick of us allowing these men to have these sexual misconduct cases looming over their heads. And we still got to work with them every day. Mm. Because again, like we were saying earlier, like accountability is only important when it's affecting someone's bottom line. And since these are large television shows, and this is national information now, international information, I hope that it is affecting your bottom line. Hulu, I hope you have to fire mm. him. Well, as the dream sang on his debut album, Middle Ditch, that nigga. <laughs> Please name the episode that. Dorothy Parker, right here in the flash. <laughs> Middle ditch that nigga. <laughs> Blindly groping women at a club. Like, sometimes people think the lesser offenses of sexual misconduct are the ones that we should have the most space to allow for. The concept that your idea of a good night is to just run around a club aimlessly and grab boobs is just so deranged to me. Like, you need to be hospitalized and eradicated swiftly. So, bye. It does paint sort of a zombified picture of him. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. comfortable. Yeah. Maybe he was really inspired by Benny Hill. <laughs> Classic progressive Benny Hill, if you know anything about him. Uh, Lewis, what's your keep it this week? My keep it is related to my favorite problematic entity, ancient cinema. I am very mm. excited for TCM, which has a new show called Reframed, in which they take problematic classics and engage with what is problematic about them the you know very knowledgeable people who work at this network sit around and talk about you know what's weird about 
Gone with the Wind, or what's weird about even movies you don't think of as that problematic, like My Fair Lady, which obviously has its own issues, or uh, Mickey Rourke and Breakfast at Tiffany's, things like that. Mm. And to me, I am, first of all, mad at myself that I don't host this show, because I am very thrilled to engage with whatever conversations there are about old movies. I find that exciting to learn exactly what the problems are, and also realize they were, a lot of the time, problematic at the time. Again, how many people... How many people don't understand that the NAACP was protesting Gone with the Wind before it was even made? This isn't a problem that started in 2017. And I'm still not over the fantasy that people like Donald Trump sat through Gone with the Wind, a movie that is about paying attention to a woman, one. And two, (laughs) do you think the words Butterfly McQueen have ever escaped that man's lips? I'm going with no. So stop pretending like you stand Gone with the Wind. And also, let's not pretend that um, things like Mickey Rourke in Breakfast at Tiffany's, as you mentioned, um, you know, or other movies where they would just have like white actresses in dark makeup um, and, you know, sort of like vaguely oriental music playing. Um, oh, right. I'm Louise Reiner in The Good Earth or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm thinking yeah. The Letter. Yeah. Oh, Betty Davis. Yeah. Fabulous performance um, from Betty Davis. You know, the, the Asian people were upset about that then too. Correct. Um, so I think this is an ingenious, necessary cool show that will teach people things. Well, obviously people like Tucker Carlson are railing against any context being provided for these movies, which is just part of the anti-information brigade that he is. But also, then there's Bill Maher, who is still, I guess, technically on our side, pushing the same sort of narrative. And he did a sketch where he claimed, do we need warnings before movies like Sleeping Beauty or The Wizard of Oz or Rosemary's Baby? And he made a joke like, Rosemary's Baby, warning, fails to present Planned Parenthood as a viable option. Okay, that would be like a joke I would accept if he didn't proceed it with this argument about how uh, the only problem I had with My Fair Lady was too boring or... Um, we're all smart. We all realize that we move on from problematic things in the past. But it's like, no, we don't know why they were problematic. I think we have mm-hmm. these stunted conversations about why classic cinema rankled people and was bizarre and routinely came from only the minds of old white men. You know what I mean? There was just no such thing a lot of the time as any inclusion of any other viewpoint. And I think it's cool to learn about that. It takes time for us to realize that Rosemary's Baby was actually Roman Polanski writing about how he doesn't like consent. <laughs> beautifully said. Oh, God. It's really hard. We're getting a movie about the making of Chinatown soon, and I'm worried Roman Polanski will be humanized in a way I am uncomfortable with. Mm. But I just want to reiterate that I'm excited about engaging with old movies in a new way and talking about them again and again. I also am a white man, and it's probably not as uncomfortable a conversation for me as, as, as it is for many other people. So there you have it. I always love when like Tucker or these people get so upset about these things because the insistence that any of them are sitting at home watching Turner Classic movies. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. These hardcore, whatever, Olivia de Havilland fans we're talking about right here. You will never see it. That'd be like me getting upset about MTV airing ridiculousness 19 hours a day. I don't see it. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't know care. what that is. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I just tune into the challenge and keep it moving. <laughs> right. I feel like that group of people looks at a list of what is traditionalist and loved and conservative, and I have to champion those things. And mm-hmm. Turner Classic Movies falls under that category. There's someone whose job it is at Fox to just look for these things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because they don't know. <laughs> Side note. Lewis, they released a photo of the cast of um, the new challenge All Stars, and people. Like, I know Ruthie are back. Alton, Trishel, iconic. I, I was going through the, like Cyrus is back, like really classic, mm-hmm. um, real world people. Wow. Yeah. But um, anyway, cool. Ira, um, my keep it this week is to Justin Bieber 
and his new album. Watch out how Justice. you speak on this activist name. Watch out how you speak <laughs> on my activist name. His new album, Justice, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, him leaning into his pop, pretending it's R&B phase because he still wants that R&B Grammy nomination. <laughs> I want to let you know that this album, Justice, starts out with an intro that samples... <laughs> Martin Luther King Jr. I'm not gonna. And make then it there is a MLK interlude <laughs> where it samples that speech where he talks about you know how you need to love justice, like you need to be a person who would die for something um, to really understand um, people who are striving for justice and racial equality in this country. And then juxtaposes that with a song about how he would die for Haley. <laughs> His his 24-year-old white millionaire wife. It is the (laughs) fact that because he's sampling MLK, now on the liner notes of the album, it says written by MLK for many of the songs. And it's making you think that MLK was up in the studio with Bieber and Skrillex. Letter from That's letter the from, one, putting the headphones down. Yeah. Le- letter from a Birmingham studio. Not letter from Never mind the fact studio. that. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind the fact that this album title, Justice, is reminding everyone of the joke from Atlanta where um, Austin Crute um, plays Justin Bieber is black. Uh, and then he talks about how um, he's found Jesus now and he's going to name his next album Justice. And in my mind, I'm like, I love when um, Atlanta makes, you know, people like realize like, oh, I'm being made fun of, so I have to like address it in my art. Wait, like, wait. Do you think Justin's aware of this? No, I absolutely do think he's aware of it because the okay. same way that like um, Drake's response to his episode was actually funny because he said, I'm too high to respond to this. <laughs> but then he later included a sample of one of the lines from it on his album. And I definitely think Justin heard this joke, ran into Donald, and said, man, that was so funny. Like, I am going to name my album that. And everyone laughed like, <laughs> And then later, I feel like he did do it. Mm. And Donald was like, oh, I didn't think he was serious. Yeah, and he's like, oh, and Black Lives Matter happened. It's so perfect. And my name is Justin. It's just extra perfect, bro. Yeah. Unfortunately, the album does slap. Okay, um, I re- so you had us until that moment. This is his weakest <laughs> album. But I do want to remind our audience that this is the same album that Chance the Rapper was on live with Justin Bieber and said that this album was similar to Off the Wall. Mm. And it was the best music Justin oh has gosh. ever made. Yeah, I just want you to know that. Lewis? <laughs> okay, well, that's not true. But also, I skipped the chant song. I think That's the fair. album should have been called I think the album should have been called Justified. Fully in the Timberland camp. And then secondly, I don't want to be too mean. I wish Justin and his wife Coretta Scott Bieber well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's in the Pantheon now. Uh, a real artist would have sampled those taped FBI phone calls from MLK to the mistress. Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's talk, real let's justice. Let's talk about that. Uh-huh. Massage noir, bitch. <laughs> I think the... But if anyone wants a fun listen, Peaches with Giveon and Daniel Caesar. First of all, the video's hilarious. The lyrics are hilarious. Everyone's presence on that song is pointless. Please go enjoy that song. Yeah. See? You got <laughs> caught up in the rapture too, Aida. I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Take me away. Kingdom come. I'm tripping. (laughs) All right, that's our episode. Thanks again to Cerise Castle for joining us and Don Lemon for that lengthy convo. Uh, We'll see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Caroline Reston and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. 
Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. I think I've heard of him. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Narmel Konian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. Stay safe. Be blessed. God loves you. Wayfair's biggest sale of the year is here. It's Wayday. Right now, you can score up to 80% off at Wayfair. Save on sofas and cookware, dining sets and rugs and beds, wall art, bar cards, floor lamps, sailing fans, home decor, all things outdoor, and way more. All up to 80% off right now. Plus, everything ships free. And flash deals are launching all Wayday long. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Shop Wayday right now from May 6th at Wayfair.com. Wayfair, every style, every home.